If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. This is one of the greatest prophecies about the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was uh, prophesied about by Isaiah many, many uh, years before the dawn of, of, of Christ's incarnation. So Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that goes before its shear. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, thus ends a reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he again write this word upon our hearts. If you turn in your order of worship to the uh, confessional reading element, this morning we are confessing together from our Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 15, Lord's Day 15, question and answers 37 through 39. We're considering together the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So question 37, again, if you would please respond by reciting the answer as I will um, be asking the question. So question 37 asks, what do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering 
as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Question 38 asks, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Question 39 asks, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. As you know, we are making our way through this grace section of the Heidelberg Catechism. The three main sections in this catechism are guilt, grace, and gratitude. And the grace section is focused upon uh, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the main response that we are to have to the person and work of, of Jesus Christ is a response of faith. And so what, according to the catechism, is true faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Cat, knowledge, assent, and trust. We have to know certain things, assent to certain things, and trust, personally trust, that they are, are true of us. And according to catechism, what's the content of this true faith? The Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is a summary of the basics of Christianity, centered upon our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we are making our way then through an exposition of the Apostles' Creed as the content of true faith, those things that we need to know, assent to, and personally place our trust in. We are considering the work of Christ. We looked at the person of Christ, now we're looking at the work of Christ. And today, we are fixing our minds and hearts upon the sufferings of Christ, which we are nearing in, in our consideration of the Gospel of Luke in our first service. Now, we know in our ordinary life that pain, hardship, sorrow, grief, even death, affliction, weakness, these are all ordinary elements of living in a fallen world. Or to put it another way, we know that suffering is a normal expectation for life in a fallen world. Oftentimes, I think when we think of suffering, we think of the big things. We think of the diagnosis. We think of a sudden loss of a job. We think of death. And those, indeed, are sufferings, part of the sufferings of this present age. However, Scripture also speaks of, of the small things as being part of the sufferings of this present age. Anything that we endure that's difficult, that's a result of the common curse of Genesis chapter 3, are included in the sufferings of this present age. So not just the big things, but even the small things, the setbacks, the disappointment, the frustration, those are part of the sufferings of this present age. So if we all consider our own lives right now, we all have sufferings. Some of them may be big, but all of us have probably many small things, difficult things, frustrating things, things that cause angst or anxiety or, or fear. And the only solace, the real place of comfort and peace that we can turn to in the midst of all of our sufferings, the big sufferings, the small sufferings, is the suffering Christ on a cross. That's the only place that we can turn to and actually find real comfort, real peace, and that's the, the main message of, of Scripture. It centers upon the work, the sufferings of, 
of our Lord. One author I was reading this week uh, speaks of how Christ, especially at the end of his life, he went comfortless so that we may receive comfort. He experienced the greatest suffering of all, the greatest suffering of all, so that his people would be delivered from that suffering. He was cut off from his father so that no child of God will ever be. And so, even though we don't understand why God permits certain things into our life, we know that we can be assured that we have a living hope, as we considered earlier, a living hope of, a, of an age that will be a suffering-free age. And we learn that when we consider the cross. Even though we don't know why God necessarily does what he does in his secret will, we know when we look at the cross that God loves us, even when our circumstances seem to testify to the opposite reality. Because if God went to such great lengths in sending his son to suffer, the greatest suffering of all, we can be assured at least that he loves us even when our circumstances seem to testify against us. And so these sufferings of Christ are, are immensely practical to us. They are what we are to center our minds and hearts upon, especially when we are facing our own sufferings in this present evil age. I'd like us just to consider then these questions. You'll see question answer 37 speaks broadly to what we understand about the word suffered. And then question 38 and 39 focus on particular aspects of his suffering. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate? Question 39, well, what's the significance of the cross? Is that arbitrary? You'll see at the beginning of, of question answer 37, we confess that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ suffered in body and soul. We confess that Christ suffered his entire life, not just on the cross. Now, when we think about the sufferings of Christ, we think explicitly about the cross, and that's true. That was the climax of his suffering. However, his suffering began when he was birthed into this fallen world under a common curse. Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ humbled himself by taking upon himself a human nature, by coming in the form of a servant. That begins at his birth. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should uh, desire him. He was despised, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He didn't experience worldly power or prestige. He, he was humble and weak and despised. He experienced the normal things that we experience by virtue of living in a fallen world, the infirmities that come with a human nature. In this world, he experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue. He experienced sorrow and grief and frustration with others who betray him. He did all of these things except for sin. So he experienced existence in a fallen, sin-cursed world. One thing that's very uh, particular about Christ's sufferings, though, these common sufferings that he endured, is that they were the platform for his righteousness to shine forth. Think about how your sufferings, your common sufferings, function in, in your life. For us, they oftentimes function as a platform for us to display our sin. Think if you know, you're, you're on your way to an important appointment and you um, encounter unforeseen traffic and you're late for your appointment and you grow frustrated and irritable. Your common suffering of a setback is now a platform you, for you to display your sinfulness. Or you've had a few nights of very little sleep and you become 
uh, short-tempered with those around you. Your common suffering becomes a platform, a trigger for your sinfulness. Whenever we catch ourselves playing you know, the so-called blame game, if I wouldn't be reacting this way if my situation was different, or I wouldn't be reacting this way if, if so-and-so wasn't acting so foolishly. Right? It's, it's them or it's the situation that's causing me to react sinfully. Whenever we think that way or speak that way, we're essentially just saying that the common sufferings of this life are a platform for us to showcase our sin. We know that. These things are, are triggers uh, for us. But for Christ, it was the exact opposite. During the times where he experienced the common sufferings of living in a fallen world, those were the times where his righteousness especially shone forth, shined forth. He acted opposite to the way that we ordinarily act. He chose virtue and righteousness instead of sin and vice. And we know then that the suffering ultimately climaxed when he went to the cross. Now consider how, how, how difficult it would have been to know that, I mean, Jesus knew what was going to, how his life was going to end. He knew that, that he, his whole entire life was a life of anticipating this gruesome, not just death, but experience of, uh, of, of bearing the wrath of God for the sins of all his people. And we can't even imagine the agony of that. But Jesus had to anticipate that his entire human existence. Again, imagine those times when you are anticipating a, an event that you are fearful of, anxious about, an event that you're dreading. The anticipation oftentimes is worse than the event itself, is it not? So much so that when someone asks you how, how that event went, our common response is, I'm just glad that it's over. I don't have to anticipate it anymore. Well, Jesus had to anticipate this unbelievably dreadful event of bearing the wrath of God, bearing an eternity of hell for every single one of his people on the cross. We can't even begin to imagine what that would have been like. And he had that, that weight upon his shoulders his entire human existence. And then as we know, he, he did go to the cross. And you know, boys and girls, as I already alluded, alluded to, the, 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 the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross was not just the, the physical pain of, of being nailed to a cross. That was, that was the, the, the easiest part of it. The worst part was that he was bearing a divine curse. He was bearing God's wrath against sin in his soul. Again, as I mentioned, something that we can't even begin to imagine. In the first service, I alluded to C.S. Lewis, how he talks about the joys in this life are like a mirage of, of, of the blessedness of the age to come. Well, the, the flip side is also true. That physical pain that he experienced was just a, a small foretaste, a, a mirage of the eternal condemnation and wrath of, of God that he was, he was experiencing on the cross. It's important to confess that Christ on the cross bore the wrath of God. There's been many views of the atonement throughout the history of the church. But Christ went to the cross as our substitute and bore the wrath of God in your place for the sins that you and I have committed. That's what we confess. So Jesus, when he was in the Mount of Olives praying before, right before he's about to go to this cross, sweating blood, anticipating in anguish this moment that was about to come upon him. And what does he say? What does he ask his father? To remove the cup. 
to remove this cup from him. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. He knew that it was a will of his father that he should drink the cup of his father's wrath to its very dregs. But he's in anguish about it. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then on the cross, you'll remember those words that he says at his moment of death when he says, it is finished. What is finished? Him satisfying as your substitute God's wrath for your sins. This is the greatest suffering imaginable that Christ took in your place. That's why the, 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 the veil in the temple tore in two, which means that peace has been transacted between God and man. We now have open access to the heavenly throne room of God and can boldly approach God in his throne of grace because Christ was our substitute upon that cross. Now, according to the catechism, what's the purpose? So according to question answer uh, 37, what's the purpose of this suffering of Christ? To deliver us from eternal condemnation and gain God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Yes, exactly. You'll see... Um, that purpose caused this he did in order that by his suffering we might be redeemed from eternal condemnation and granted eternal righteousness. And there's two parts to our justification. We not only need our, our debt removed, our sins removed, our sins forgiven, our, our, our God's wrath abated, and Jesus' death on the cross does that. But we also need positive righteousness granted to our account. And Jesus's life of, of positive obedience and righteousness then is imputed to us so that we have, we have holiness to present before God. And theologians have sometimes uh, distinguished uh, Christ's obedience into his active obedience and passive obedience. So his active obedience refers to him actively obeying the law and bringing forth and giving to us this positive righteousness. And this is, his passive obedience is not, not, it's not that he's not active in his passive obedience, but the passive comes from the Latin word paseo, which means suffering. It's his suffering obedience. It's him suffering the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. Because we need both of those aspects. We need positive righteousness. We also need God's wrath to be satisfied and abated. Though it's important to make that distinction, we should see Christ's obedience as a packaged whole because when we think about the climax of Christ's suffering obedience, which is the cross, even on the cross, he's actively obeying his father because he's praying for his enemies on the cross. That's part of that righteousness which we need. And then the classic example of Christ's positive obedience and righteousness could be thought of as his temptation in the wilderness by the, by the devil. And even as he's obeying God's law and doing what the first Adam failed to do, he's, experienced the, he's experiencing the common suffering of living in this present evil age. He's hungry, he's tired, he's fatigued. And so we see then his obedience is really a packaged whole that's granted to us, imputed to us, so that we might be redeemed from eternal condemnation and then gained or, or granted this eternal righteousness and salvation. So this is the gospel. This is, the ju this is justification. <laughs> this is why Christ suffered in our place to deal with our two problems of not having inherent righteousness and our problem of, of having a debt. 
And he removes our sins and grants to us this righteousness. Now, a phrase in question answer 37 that may seem a bit perplexing to us is, is the first, first sentence, first part of this answer. It says that Christ, during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. What do we think about that? Did Christ on the cross satisfy every single sin of every single person who's ever lived? If that's the case, does that mean, are we universalists? Perplexing language, isn't it? Well, there's a number of, I mean, the catechism here is, is merely reiterating a number of, of, of scripture passages. There's a number of scripture passages that speak about Christ dying generally for the world. So, for instance, John chapter 129, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Or 1 John 2.2, 2, John says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. John 3.16, for God to love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A number of passages would speak to Christ's death just generally being for the world. But then we have another strand of biblical text that speak about Christ's death being personal and particular. So for instance, in John 6, 37-39, uh, Jesus says, I've not come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what's the will of him who sent me? That I should lose none of those whom the Father has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus is saying that his mission was to save a people whom the Father had given him. This is personal and particular language. Or John 10, uh, John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And I laid down my life for the sheep. What sheep? My sheep. You know, those of you who have, have children, when you refer to my kids, my children, you are distinguishing those children that belong to you as opposed to every other child on this earth. This is personal and particular language. Christ lays down his life for his sheep, my sheep. And then Ephesians 5. How does Paul, what human relationship does Paul point to uh, to describe Christ's atonement. The marital relationship. Christ's death for his bride. Christ's death for his people is like a husband's love for his bride. And if you think about a marriage relationship, that's the most personal and particular kind of love that exists in human society. And that's the analogy that Paul uses to describe Christ's death on the cross. Personal and particular, like a husband's love for his bride. So what do we do? We have, on the one hand, the, the strand of biblical texts that speak to Christ just generally dying for the world, but then you have these other texts that speak about this divine intent, that Christ came for a particular people, and he personally had his people in mind when he was obeying, suffering, and dying on the cross. Well, you'll notice in question answer 37, uh, the author includes both both strands of these texts because it begins by saying Christ sustained body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race but notice the purpose this he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice he might deliver us 
Who's the us? The church, the elect, the bride, those who actually have received the benefits of Christ. So that's the particular language. Catechism includes a general language, and then, and then there's the particular language that this, this sacrifice is applied to the church, to us, to the elect. I mentioned before that the main author of the Heidelberg Catechism, it was, it was written chiefly by two, two men, but the, the main author of, of this catechism also was a professor at the University of Heidelberg. And he gave lectures to ministerial students on the Heidelberg Catechism after he wrote it. And those lectures then were compiled into a commentary that, that, that we still have today. And in his lecture on this question and answer, he, he makes a very important distinction. He says this, Christ satisfied for all as it respects the sufficiency of the satisfaction which he made, but not as it respects the application thereof. So he's making a distinction, a well-known distinction that was used throughout the history of the church, that Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect, right? Sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. One of our other confessions, the Canons of Dort, which was written about 60 years later, it says the very same thing. It says that the death of God's son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. So objectively speaking, there's nothing limited about Christ's blood. Christ's blood, objectively speaking, has the power to redeem the sins of the whole world. In fact, some other theologians have said even if there were thousands of worlds, he would, his blood would have the power because of who he is to redeem the sins from all of those thousands of worlds. However, it's efficient for the elect. We have to ask ourselves, what's the divine intent behind the atonement? Well, the divine intent was for his bride, his sheep, his people. Sufficient Sufficient for all, efficient, effectual for uh, the elect. And this is comforting. This is good news. And it's good news because if, if, if Christ just generally died for all, then what he would be doing is he would just be making salvation possible. All right? Here are the gifts of salvation. Come and get it. But if we confess human depravity and confess that we are indeed dead in our sins and trespasses, then that's not good news because we don't have the moral capability to come and receive that gift. So if he makes it possible, he's really not achieving anything, if that's all he's doing. But if we confess this divine intent that he came for his bride, his people, he actually accomplished something. He accomplished salvation. As, as, as John 6, Jesus says that I've come to do the will of my Father, and the will of my Father is to make sure that the Father's people will be raised on the last day. He accomplishes salvation. Every time that these doctrines of election or, or Christ's atonement are brought up, it's always in the context of not creating doubt within our hearts and minds, but giving us assurance. Scripture speaks in such a way that if you believe, you are the elect of God. If you believe, you are the one for whom Christ has died. And we are to treat everyone with whom we come into contact with as the elect of God, as someone for whom Christ spilled his blood personally and particularly. 
So question 37, we confess the sufferings of Christ, which, which has brought us this, this free justification. He was pierced for our transgressions, as Isaiah 53 says. Well, question 38 asks a question that, that we may not have considered much before. If you think about the Apostles' Creed, how abbreviated it is, it's kind of striking that it would include Pontius Pilate in, uh, in, in, in the Creed. Suffering. Why did Christ have to suffer under Pontius Pilate? Have you ever considered that in particular? What's the significance of Christ's suffering under this, this Roman, Roman governor of Palestine in the first century? Condemnation by the world. Yes, and the Catechism says that condemnation then assures us that Christ ultimately took upon himself the condemnation of God. This also touches upon this, this, this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. John 19, verse 11, Jesus, before Pilate, says, you only have authority because it's been given to you from above. Jesus knows that Pilate is only in his office and position because God has granted it to him. Think of Romans 13. Every authority has been ordained by God, even the civil magistrate. The magistrate is a servant of God. So God is the one who instituted and put Pilate in his position. And Pilate handed Jesus over and was complicit in his death. Think of Acts 2.23 when uh, Peter says at Pentecost, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Meaning, yes, Judas and the Jews and, and, and Pilate were complicit and responsible for the death of Jesus. But Peter says this all was under the umbrella of God's divine plan and foreknowledge. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. This shows us that even though humans are responsible moral agents in this world, everything still falls under God's sovereign hand and direction. Think of Joseph's words in Genesis 50. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. God in his sovereignty is able to turn ultimate good out of ultimate evil. And that is most, um, that's best portrayed at the cross. The greatest act of evil is then at the same time the greatest good for all mankind. So God is sovereign over human affairs, even even ultimately the, the death of his son. But this also shows us that our Christian faith is objective and historical. Acts 25, Jesus is before uh, King Agrippa, and he says these things, that is to say these, these events of, of Christ and the Acts of the Apostles have not happened behind a closed door. They're objective. They're historical. Christ actually lived in history under a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate in the first century. And this is assuring that when we share our faith, we're sharing the faith. We're not sharing ultimately our subjective appropriation of that faith, our feelings and experience. We're sharing an objective historical faith that has occurred outside of us that demands a response no matter what one's personal experiences have been. And so this is assuring to us that Christ actually lived in history. He died and rose again, and that needs to be dealt with. 
We need to respond to that. We can't be on the fence. And lastly, the, the catechism zeroes in on, on Christ's suffering on the cross. Is this significant or is it merely arbitrary that Christ died on a Roman cross? Interesting to think about how the means of Christ's death illuminates the purpose of his death. So the how explains the why. So the means of his execution is in itself an illustration, a lesson on the purpose of his death. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that uh, Christ re redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's citing Moses from Deuteronomy. Jews knew that the one who died on a tree was cursed. That's the death of, of divine judgment. And therefore, the cross, that means of execution, assures us that Christ took upon himself the curse of God. The how explains the why. The means explains the purpose. Christ took upon himself the curse of God. And, you know, boys and girl, girls, a curse is, uh, here is referring to divine punishment. Our sin earns before God his punishment. And him dying on the cross assures us that he took your punishment. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was our substitute on that cross. So every time we see a cross, it should be a reminder to us that Jesus bore in your place the curse of God. That's what the cross should remind us of. He became a curse that we could be forever blessed. And remember, this these question and answers come within the context of, of true faith. These are the things that we are called, Scripture calls us to put our faith in, to know, to assent to, and to personally trust in. We're especially called to trust in these things when we are experiencing the sufferings of this present age. Big sufferings, small sufferings. We are called to look upon the cross where Jesus himself went comfortless so that we would have a living hope of one day experiencing a perfect and glorified comfort in the presence of a holy God.